0: welcome to book shambles you're listening to an abridged version of this episode you can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a patreon supporter of the show and that's for as little as one dollar a month via patreon and uh, you can support us so just go to patreon.com forward slash i still say forward slash I'm, i'm nearly 51 thank you uh forward slash book shambles for more info and how to pledge
1: Hello, welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. This week's episode, we've got two guests and two different conversations about two different books, but uh, books on very similar topics. First up, we've got Robin chatting to Dave Copland. Josie wasn't available for this conversation about uh, his book, Rise of the Humans, which is all about uh, our evolving relationship with technology. And the second conversation, uh, Robin and Josie talk to Gaia Vince about her new book, Transcendence, which is all about uh, how humans have evolved over time uh, due to their relationship with tools and culture and the creation of a society. So we hope you enjoy both of those conversations. If you'd like to hear the full versions of both of these conversations, which is Basically another 45, 50 minutes of chat. You can get that on our Book Shambles Patreon feed. So if you're a Book Shambles Patreon, firstly, thank you very much. That's where you'll find that. And if you'd like to become a Patreon, go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and subscribe and you'll find the full version of both of these conversations as well as uh, the Robin and Dave chat you'll be able to watch. As well, because we recorded it over Skype during lockdown, so yeah, but you can, uh, you can watch that on a secret link there and enjoy Day's excellent animated robot background. So hope you, so hope you enjoy this episode. And here it is.
0: Hello, welcome to Josie and Robert's Book Shambles. Uh, Josie is preoccupied, so today it is robin's book shambles and today we're with uh dave coplin who wrote rise of the humans which he's recently updated as well uh, originally i think dave is it right 2014 yeah that's right yeah so this is uh, it's an interesting thing because you you work in or, or you, is it still true? You, you, you work with Microsoft. Are you still working with Microsoft? Uh,
2: no, I, I, I was an employee until three years ago. I left in good grace. Uh, they're a client now, but I I, I wanted to uh, I wanted a position of independence. So now I work with a lot of the big tech companies as well as others, um, but actually trying to not talk about tech, but really talk about the humans that use it.
0: Well, this is the interesting, difficult thing, because that's what I thought when I first read your book, was here is someone who is working in this world, in a world which you can imagine really they want to say never leave your computer always make sure you're downloading a new app that we've recently created and you know there might be people pretending it's much like when a gambling company goes we feel it's very important that you are responsible with your gambling hello we run a pub please don't drink too much be aware of how and and so I found it uh, was there in any way in in your mind because you know the the book is about trying to deal with the fact that we become all immersed in uh, a world of a very often an artificial world a virtual world a world without a a sense of, of real i think in some ways what i would call real human communication in which you can see the foibles the nods the winks the verbal cues yeah and did you find yourself conflicted in any ways going well i work in this world but i'm also saying you've really got to be more careful with the way you use this world
2: Do you know, the weird thing, Robin, is it wasn't so much as a conflict. I I was a bit incensed, actually, by my industry, uh, the tech industry, because we would fixate on the products and the technology, and we would tell you about the app, and we would tell you about the new feature, but we wouldn't really help you understand where is it best to use it? How do you get the best value? And, you know, my entire life, I've loved technology, but more specifically, I've loved what the technology enables us to do. And I just felt that we were doing a disservice to people by not... helping them you know navigate their path about how to get the most value from it so there was no conflict it was more like a duty of care which sounds really trite but i mean i genuinely mean that just because i want to make sure that everybody loves technology and i want to make sure that everybody gets the best possible value to make what they do better
0: when did you realize how all immersive it had become because I, I was watching a film last night called the last resort or last resort rather with paddy Konstein and it was a uh, tooth uh year 2000 it was made or 1999 and you look at that film and you look at the scenes and you look at the the scenes of people in offices and you look at people queuing with phone cards to go and use you know the phone box and it is one of those you go that's 20 years in 20 years It has gone from being an area. I mean, I'm sure we all remember when we bought our first great big lumpy computer. And that might have been for some people late 90s. It might have only been 10, 15 years ago. And it was something that was in the corner of the room that you started to work with. And then you'd suddenly go, it's four in the morning. And I'm still connected to this.
2: Yeah. I, I think the bit for me where I really started to dial into this was uh late 90s early 2000s and it was the email addiction and i was living in a corporate world and, and in the late 90s early 2000s it was the world of the crackberry uh, so to l- remember the little uh they were phones too but they had a little keyboard on and you would be on there doing your email and i just saw and i was one of these guys too right so people who would leave the office at the end of the day and then they would spend the rest of their evening and weekend looking at this tiny screen you know getting terrible rsi in their thumbs because they were so important and and they had to email because they could um what I saw, and again, because I'm the technologist, is this is a technology that's supposed to be releasing us. It's supposed to be freeing us up so we can choose to work where we want and when we want, and yet the reality of human behavior was, I'm gonna work all the time. Now, some of that was driven by corporate culture, and I know organizations you know, where you've got that stereotypical boss who sends a message you know, at 11 o'clock at night, and if you haven't responded by 11.30 know, p.m., you're not committed to the team. Uh, but it was like, this, this is not what we're supposed to do with this so it really goes back to the late 90s for me um and then of course it got worse the better those devices got and now it's not just email anymore um you know it's all of this social media and actually i would put it to you robin that what we've seen over the last 12 weeks in lockdown i think that uh a video calling zoom calls skype calls whatever have become the new email i know so many people at work who have got this sense of i have to be seen to be working so i'm going to spend all my days in zoomy i'm getting nothing done right i'm doing bugger all but i'm there and you can see my little picture on the screen and I'm and away we go so all of this is just it's the it's a perverse use of technology that we've got to correct because the technology is supposed to support us not imprison us
0: but that is i mean the meeting culture beyond even this thing is is one of the things that annoys me most in the world that i work in which yes. is can we make something let's do something well we can have a meeting about that and and i i think as well beyond the the just the technology side of it there seems to be in a whole swathe of people who are employed to have meetings and i've had that with infinite monkey cage things that we've worked on where you go here's the idea we can do this and yes. And I I have a three meeting rule that by the time they get, can we have a third meeting? I go, if we haven't done anything, <laughs> if, if nothing has changed from the first two meetings. No, we're not having a third meeting yeah. until yeah. we actually get some sense of movement. Yeah. And
2: and what you're talking about, Robin, for me, in, in, there's sort of a broad sense in productivity in how we work. And um there's a guy called Cal Newport and he wrote a book and I'd love to remember the title, but I'll look it up. But he he talks about this concept of deep productivity versus shallow productivity. And shallow productivity is all of the stuff that we, we spend actually too much time doing, which is the pushing information backwards and forwards. It's the crappy meeting where nothing gets decided. It's the email exchange where it's like, um, where should we go for lunch? I don't know, what time are you free? I don't know, you you know, just seriously. Whereas deep productivity is getting stuff done. And what we've got to do be better at is actually spending more time doing less So more time getting really good things made and then less time bouncing information. I have a rule. Now, I had to reach a certain position in my career to be able to do this. But if I walk into a meeting and people are just we're going around the table and everybody's reporting on what they're doing and, you know, the only person listening is the person that's talking at the time and you've got people sat at the back on their laptops, I'm walking out of those meetings. That's a meeting that shouldn't be a meeting. And I would encourage all of you to rise up to that and and basically if you're in a meeting that you think is not doing anything is not getting the job done then there's a conversation you need to have you need to say well look what are we doing here and again the technology can help The technology means that when or should mean that when I walk into that meeting, I already know what we're talking about. I've already read all of the material and I'm there to decide something or to work with someone, you know, like you, for example, to get some ideas so that we can get action and we can get something done. And the problem is that shallow productivity is it's so seductive. And also it works on our brain chemistry. So every time we send a little email, you know, we get a little dopamine hit and that's quite nice. I'm going to send another one of those. And next thing you know, four hours have gone by, you've got bugger all done. Um, So it it really is about redefining productivity and getting technology in its proper place.
0: There is. I was just looking down and and my microphone is currently leaning on uh, the enormous volume of Alan Moore's Jerusalem book, which is longer than the Old Testament. (laughs) And I think, you know, Alan's productivity, you know, when he was writing that, he was also writing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and numerous other things may well be that he has one phone plugged in in his house with no answer machine. And that's it. That is, you know, sometimes people say, Can you send an email to Alan? No, no, no this is what. And have we, because I think of when I started doing stand up and there was an answer machine, I would get back home in that evening and I would press it and I would find out if I had a gig next week. Now, that, uh, that sense of perpetual connection, that sense of fear, that if we are not constantly checking our emails we're missing an opportunity. Now at the end of the month you might actually look at all those emails and say I didn't miss any opportunities. Yeah. And yet I was I was so scared that I was not merely missing out on the fun but missing out on 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 a career I suppose.
2: Yeah, and life more broadly as well, right? So, I mean, there's a couple of things there. Look, there's a baby in this bathwater, and if we disconnect totally, then I think the gift that we give up is is too great. The value of it is too great. But it's about striking a balance. I mean, I was amazed when I when I left corporate world, when I left my proper job, Um, I, you know, I, I would get so many emails every day, and it was only when I left my proper job that I realised just how huge that volume was. You know, as as an independent... Consultant now, you know, I might get maybe 20 to 50 emails a day. And of that 20 to 50, probably a good 50% are solid. You know, we're working on a project or we're interested in this gig or whatever it might be. When I was, you know, in the corporate world, it was two to 500. And it was all like, we're going to have a meeting about this. What do you think? Or even just the CC thing. I mean, that was just like, there were two things. One of the great sort of uh, opportunities when I worked for Microsoft, it was like, how do we make collaboration better? I always used to get two bits of feedback. Uh, Number one was remove the CC line on emails. And the second, and this was the best one, was uh, just get rid of reply all. Reply all is like the bane of everybody's life because nobody needs to know what everybody else thinks. Do you know what I mean? So, but it is about trying to find the right balance. And, and again, you know, social media is a particular problem. And I don't know if you've found this, Robin, but, you know, when you're trying to build your career and your brand and your business relies on people knowing about you and what you can do, you start to get a little bit fixated by the numbers. So I've recently started live streaming. And live streaming is kind of interesting because it's not an instant thing. I mean, it is an instant thing, but in terms of building your audience, it takes months to get to an audience. But I am seduced every week when I'm doing it. I'm looking over, you know, I have a counter and I'm like, how many people are watching? How many, oh God, that's not very many, Jesus. Oh, you know, and it's like, why? It doesn't matter. The content is the content and over time it will be judged on its merits. Whether there's 10 people or a thousand people, it's irrelevant at that moment in time. But there's something in us that, that sort of brings us back to those numbers.
0: Is it, I mean, is there something in terms of that this, this system of communication has increased the fragility of our ego? So when you see a lot of double downing, for instance, on a, a lot of the issues which have become so incendiary and, yeah. and where you sometimes see a friend of yours and you go, whoa, I mean, like, for instance, you know, I, I think of the way that the debate around trans issues has gone in the last year. And it has become something which is certainly impossible to talk about within social media. Yeah. Not impossible to talk about if you actually sat in a bar with someone or sat with someone and you can properly talk about it, but in that environment... It has, uh, and and it seems to me that a lot of that is because the moment someone, and, and we see this also at the moment with I think some of the aggressive attitude um, against you know Black Lives Matter and so on. Yeah, seems to be that for some some people, people like us really, I suppose you know you know white privileged men. Yeah. some people react to that by going, "Oh, you're saying I'm an arsehole. No, 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 no. Hang on, <laughs> hang on, hang on. We're we're just saying look at yourself and and wonder about the world and oh oh, so I've had it easy." No, no, no. Everyone has it tough, but some people have different levels. Yeah, all of that bit. So the thing, the first reaction is to double down. And then yeah. once you've done that, you cannot move forward. You just build the fences and the walls around you.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, but, I mean, th- there's two things there, Robin. If you, if you sort of transition this into real life as you did it, like it in the pub, um those conversations would be the same except for they would move to the next level so you would get the double down you know like i refuse to believe that and then after a while but no seriously well you know what you've got a point there but what i was really trying to say those conversations never happen on social media you never get never you rarely get to that to that second piece the other side of this is and, and you talked about this very early on in the conversation about the sort of the loss of the extra communication that happens when you are doing more than just looking at characters typed on a screen. And there was some uh, bullshit science done about the level of communication that you get and, and it was, you know, something like from the from the actual words, and, and the numbers are irrelevant because it was proved to be wrong, but I kind of like the sentiment. The, the words alone give 7%, the body language gives sort of 30 or 40, but the facial cues kind of give another uh, 50%. So, basically the words are, the smallest part, seeing me as an individual, being able to read my sort of facial expressions, see my gestures, completes the picture. And Part of social is that we don't we have just such a small window into what that person's thinking. It's so easy to misconstrue or to be incensed or to take something the wrong way, uh, it, it, you know, is on one side of it. Um, I don't know about you, but I've found... In in a world where, you know, physical sort of uh, connection is really hard or even being in the same room as as other people is hard, videos are sort of a good second best. And I've found myself certainly doing a lot more video calls so that communication is is happening better. But it really is about helping people to sort of, uh, you know, engage with the concept and be able to hold somebody else's idea in their own brain for a while before, you know, immediately trashing it. Um, And that's the other part of social is it's just instantaneous, isn't it? So it's much easier for me to not think and just sort of emit a response. Um, without sort of taking time to consider, which if you were in a pub, you say, Dave, don't be such an arse. Um, look, th- th- can you not see? Um, and it might be that I am an arse and it might be that I can't see, but at least we would have the opportunity to see it through.
0: That's an in- <laughs> I mean... D- Should we really have something which makes it just a little bit harder to immediately put a bit? Because in that way, if you imagined how many letters people would write, (laughs) I mean, you know, there's a group of people who who might know never have written a letter in the 1990s, who now, technically, are are writing 40 or 50 letters to strangers a day, and that bit of you know, even the act of where's the paper and where's the pen will mean that someone doesn't end up writing to complain to the train company or whatever is there something which just means that because that that seems to me that that, you know the fast brain slow brain thing so much of it is a fast brain thing which is just straight in there yeah and once you've said it aloud and i think we've seen this with some some of the personalities who've kind of got into you know trouble or or or, you know people have really gone off them is they've said something technically allowed on the internet and that's it now they have to defend that forever and and the damage is it's a really sad thing to see that you know, some people who were revered, or you know, sometimes it's someone that you really love, and you love their work, and you love their yeah, books, yeah, and yeah. then they they they've delivered an opinion <laughs> which would you'd never have even known they ever had that opinion <laughs> because it would have only been something they said to their mates, and no, exactly. something, and they they've forgotten that, and now you go oh. I might get rid of those books now. And it's, it's, a, it's such a sad moment.
2: No, I know exactly what you mean. I, I mean, I don't know what you do. I mean, there's that you can look at it from both ends, I, I guess. So one is, and, and some people do this. I've done this from time to time. I put a time delay on my email. Um, you know, which is quite often because I've forgotten to put the attachment, but occasionally it's because I've gone off on one and I really shouldn't have, you know, so I've caught myself before that's got too far. The other side of it is and we we saw this a lot um, when social really first turned up um, and we saw it in advertising. So before, you know, if I was going to complain about uh, an advert. Uh, it was a lot of work, you know, to write a letter, you know, maybe pick up the phone. Well, now, of course, you know, I can not only, you know, tell them in a tweet, I can tell all my followers to tell them in a tweet. And and what you have to do over time is you slowly start to weight the level of response. So, you know, does 10,000 complaints on Twitter equate to 100 letters? You know, I don't know, but there's probably some, it's not a one-to-one ratio. I know that much. Um, so I think there's a bit of that as well. But again, on, on the sort of the individual side of this, it comes back to the digital civility. And, and, and you know, I keep coming back to kids, but, you know, we have this opportunity right now to teach them to be great citizens. And I know that sounds awful, but I just mean to not be an ass on the internet. But
0: isn't that a weird thing? Doesn't that sound awful? This is what I'm... <laughs> always intrigued about and i think the way that the social media works has highlighted this which to express ideas of love kindness pragmatism all of those you you immediately feel that you have to apologize i i know it sounds yeah and that's that to me is a very you know as as we've seen with some of the personalities that become elevated through this you know yeah. the, and again I, I, I don't even want to mention it but there are people who became TV personalities and then it would turn out that they were tremendously vicious and yeah. that some of the stuff they wrote would previously have been considered quite close to to neo Nazism right yeah. th- that that and that seems to me that they could get that their dopamine hit this negative dopamine hit of of fury. Yeah, people love fury, and people love dispensing hate. And you've just said something that is very useful, and which suggests a society which is kinder and and yeah. and and practically much more wonderful. And there's nevertheless the, I know it sounds a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. I, know. Yeah, I know, but it is. It's hard, and, and it's almost you know because it's so obvious. You know, why wouldn't we want to be nice? And and yet there's something about, it. and you know, again uh i I've, I've got a a teenage boy and um he's my son actually that sounds a bit weird if i didn't have yeah, that yeah. context <laughs> in. Yeah, so. uh but you you look at the this sort of the gamer world um and it's you know they call it toxic right there are games that are just horrible if you're not brilliant at them just the level of abuse that you get is just horrible and i just think what a sad sort of world that that is that we, we you know we're contributing to and what can we do you know not just to make that less the case but also to make it more inclusive so that everybody feels welcome and there are games and there are platforms i think that where where you do see that genuinely happening but to make that the norm rather than the exception and I I think we've just got to get to people and I think you know yes it's about the kids it's also about getting to the adults too and you know one of the conversations I have a lot you know I I have this sort of um stage show that is for you know it's kind of you look on the surface and it's kind of aimed at kids well actually it's aimed at their parents and what I'm trying to do to their parents is wake them up a bit and just say look this technology is an amazing thing if we help our kids acquire the right skills I'm telling you they will cure cancer they will solve climate change but only if we help them build that relationship that that gives them a positive opportunity rather than a negative opportunity. And if I'm lucky, you know, at the end of a show, I'll get to talk to some of those parents, and you'll see that the light bulbs have got on. And these would be the parents who typically are worried about screen time and they think that consoles are bad and and i'm not saying that you know universally they're good but anything we can do to help our kids build a great relationship with technology will not just help make their lives better you know the potential for all of us as a society is even greater now why wouldn't we want to do that and i think that's part of the dialogue so the more we can do to get the adults on the journey too and again i come back to what's happened in lockdown i love it because the the, you know the parents or the adults who would be like no computers are not for me video cool well, that's for the kids it's not for me well they're bloody doing it every day and sometimes they even like it you know it's just great so you know we've just got to build that relationship and you know you talk about sort of alan moore and and, and you know alan moore makes me think of science fiction and science fiction is terrible as much as i love it uh, you know we're always really eager to present this dystopian view you know we'll talk about um uh, you know the end of the world we'll talk about a crisis in you know mental health in our kids we're, we've got a black mirror we haven't got a white mirror we haven't got you know somewhere that says actually guys if we get it right look at this it'll be amazing and uh you, you and i did when we were kids and and sorry to nerd out but it was called star trek and 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 if you like a bit of tomorrow's world but for me it was star trek and it was you know star trek presented this world where technology was universally a force for good Now, it might be abused by bad people, but the technology itself wasn't malevolent. It wasn't going to hurt anybody. Um, And I think we need some positive role models. I think we need to get back to that. I think we need to show people. And again, this isn't just for the nerds. This isn't just for the people who are going to go on to be computer scientists. This is for every sort of person to see that I don't care what you do. I guarantee you that technology can make it better. I guarantee you. And, And it's how do we help them understand that and engage with it?
0: That's an interesting that, that that kind of uh, aggression towards technology as well is interesting. Was talking with uh, Rusty Schweikart, who was uh, Apollo Nine and testing uh, out the lunar module, in, and um, and he talked about the moment about five years after he'd been in space. He did a talk at a, a group of people called Lindisfarne. It was called. It was up on Long Island, on the, yeah. end, on the end of Long Island, and. uh and it was when everything came into focus for him about what it was to go into space. And he was, he's one of those rare things, which is basically a, a, a a godless left-wing Apollo astronaut, right? There's not as many of those as you might imagine. And (laughs) he, uh, he was really interesting in terms of the point where he realized that for a lot of people, the idea of the space race was this was a kind of macho right wing. This is what the man wanted to do. And he spent a lot of his career saying to the people on the, on the left and people in counterculture, this is the technology that's also going to take us, you know, the, the, yeah. the cosmic birth technology. Yeah, yeah, and that bit that we don't always need to, you know, don't always smash the printing presses and don't. But it's an yeah. interesting because I also think we have that ability, which is we forget what we were like as kids. So we see whatever their their obsession with video games, as you said, is is no different. You know, when I go walking yeah. with my son, I have an hour long lecture given to me about Fortnite and about what goes on <laughs> here and about all these different things. But my obsessions, my my obsessions with music or with the young ones or you know alternative comedy and all those things. But we seem to imagine ourselves as children in little sailors' costumes, merely bowing to all the parents.
2: No, exactly. Exactly right. And, and you know, and thus it, it was always the same, you know, generation after generation. Some new media comes in and we're fearful of that new media. You, again, will remember me. You know, why don't you switch off your television set? Um, well, you know, OK. Um, and before that it was store novels and all if you go right back I mean there's lovely stories throughout history and I love this whole concept that you know in the beginning of reading you know if you didn't read aloud you were considered to be a bit weird you know and, and it's just all of these things happen and so I, I just I think what we need and, and I I do believe that our kids can teach us so much about the future and about what's going on by just by simply by looking at their relationship with technology and trying to engage with them now you know clearly it's easy for me because i'm a massive nerd but you know when my son was growing up i was able to sort of you know teach him physics using angry birds uh you know we did a whole bunch of stuff with minecraft and i know i know it's easy for me to do that because i've got time and it's kind of my world but i would love the best thing parents can do if they're worried about their kids and they're worried about their kids gaming is find an opportunity to game with them sit and learn i mean I, literally my best ever experience was um when my lad was about eight years old and i come down and the front room and um he's playing minecraft i've never seen it before right and i'm looking at this whole sort of 8-bit thing going on and i'm like gee what is that and he's like it's minecraft dad it looks terrible he says well you don't understand And I said, well, John, look, there's two problems with that statement. Number one, I'm your father. Of course, I bloody understand. And secondly, this is my world, mate. You're sitting on a console that's got high definition graphics and you're playing something that looks worse than when I would have played. And he was just like, you don't understand. So he hands me a controller and like 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, and and he, you know, at the time, you know, he's kind of cursed. He's a nerd like me. Right. So he can't draw, can't write, not particularly creative in a traditional sense. He then showed me around his world. He showed me about these different houses that he'd made, how he'd decorated, how he'd you know, put fuses underneath them all so he could blow them all up when he's finished, all that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden, I got it. I had this sort of epiphany as a parent. Um, and it was only because I sat with him and I engaged with him. And so I would encourage you, your kids. And just like you have a conversation about Fortnite, for me, it's five nights at Freddy's at the moment. Next week, it will be something else. Um but be in that conversation because this is their world. Wouldn't you have loved to have had a conversation with your parents about the young ones or, you know, Star Wars or Star Trek, whatever it might have been. Um, and I think the opportunity is there, and these are the these are the times uh, where we can help them build those skills and build those relationships and show them. I mean, you know, one of the conversations I have, not just with my boy, but with a lot of the kids that I talk to, is this sort of difference between consumption and creation. And consumption's lovely, right? We all love to watch YouTube stuff and we play games. Every now and again, it's nice to create something. So I'll say to to my lads, you know, you've been on YouTube a lot. Why why don't you go and create a video, or why don't you go and make a game level? Um, and there are plenty of free you know platforms out there where you can make games and slowly you can show and again this is not to make our kids necessarily to make them nerds but it's to show them the creativity that technology uh, presents them with and the things that they can do and make and that's my favorite kind of project and it's sort of the stuff where i want to focus now th- there's no point in me trying to encourage m- you know more nerds more nerd kids into being nerds as adults because they'll do that for themselves what i want to do is to make sure that everybody out there and this includes the adults sees the potential of what technology can do. So let me show you how to make things that might be physical in nature, but might have a little bit of technology in their heart uh, or, you know, use the technology to make something physical better. Those are the projects where we start to get people who wouldn't necessarily call themselves geeks involved. That's also where we solve a bit of the gender problems that we've got in my industry because we're getting a different kind of uh, thought process in, different kind of people in too. And if we can do that, then we start to really, I think, appreciate the value that technology technology can bring all of us uh, and not just the handful of people who understand how to code it or manipulate it in order to get the sort of results
0: that's brilliant let's end on that thanks so much dave and dave's book uh, Rise rise the humans is available now and today we have we have Garvinz who we've had on before and we had uh it was during a, a weird time in terms of I think everyone was very politically depressed the last time that that uh we were on uh together. Was that back in August?
3: Yeah, I think it was it was last year. We were we were uh you know running up to the, the sort of interminable will we have Brexit um situation, are we going to leave? Um yeah. In terms of political depression, that's kind of ongoing for me. So uh, <laughs> not not so much has changed there. Sorry to disappoint. In fact, um, it's possibly got worse as we head towards a no deal Brexit. Hurrah. And, uh, you know, civil war in the United States and, uh, you know,
0: Right, well let's be more upbeat about human evolution. Because your book is uh, is an upbeat book overall about human evolution. But what we hadn't realised was that your last chapter really is the last chapter then. Uh this is uh, Josie, by the way, how are you?
4: I'm good, thank you. Sorry, I'm a little bit overwhelmed today. It's sort of coming to the end of the work day and I have not tied up all my loose ends. But it's very exciting to be saying I'm having a work day at this stage, so you know. But I'm very excited to be here.
0: Uh well, let's talk about because th- this is the interesting. I, I, I think for you know your 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 first book about life on the in the Anthropocene that is has an enormous amount of travel. You are you know you, you are covering such a, a, a large number of different locations in terms of so many different ideas of what life in the Anthropocene is like. And then in in this new book, in Transcendence, you're traveling historically it feels like the other one the one other one is is an incredible journey of geography this feels like it's an incredible journey of of of, of prehistory of understanding ourselves yeah. and you chose four things you there there, there are or, or, or i should ask in fact you know in terms of those ideas that how much did you at the start of writing that book think these are the four ideas that I'm going to and how much did you find within the research go now I have found the four ideas were the things that ended up thrown out from the process.
3: Yeah. So, so, so yeah, the, uh, the adventures in the Anthropocene really came out of a two and a half year journey that I took around the planet. Um, it, Looking at places that had been changed and how we were changing them um, as humans dominate the earth in the planet that we made in the Anthropocene, the era dominated by human activity. And it was really that was really looking at what we can, what world we're making, who are, is affected, and what these people are doing about it. And this book's almost a prequel because as I was going around um, and compiling all this and looking at looking at our human changes to the planet, it, it did occur to me that no other species are doing this, right? It's just humans. And, um, you know, if you don't believe, as I don't, that we were sort of um, created in some, you know, from some godly design and put on the planet, if you, if you believe that we evolved naturally as part of nature, then what is it about us that has created a creature that that can recreate the environment that created it. You know, what what is different? If you look at our uh, closest living relatives, the chimpanzees, you know, their culture, such that it is, has not really changed in five million years. You know, they're still living in the same tropical forests that they evolved in. Um, They're still doing the relatively few um, different activities and um, uh, behaviours that they emerged with they haven't really evolved in any cultural sense from there and yet we in like the blink of an eye we've only been around for two to three hundred thousand years that's nothing we've managed in that time to completely transform our world and transform the world that the chimpanzees live in so they're now an endangered, endangered animal um and so that got me thinking you know what what was this process why why are we special what does it and what does it involve and how did we become this such a dominant creature and where are we going where are we going with this because uh we're now threatening our own existence because we've been so successful and it's systemic you know humans operate as part of a system so um the that's something that really fascinates me, the um, the human planetary interactions, the human system and the planetary system and how they interact. So, so we see that interaction, the interaction of these, um, uh, the various components of the planetary system in the Anthropocene. You know how hydrology and temperature and burning fossil fuels and putting plastics in the ocean and making food. Um, through artificial landscapes of farming, how that all creates this um, system which is greater than the sum of its parts, this Anthropocene system. So the human system is really, really important um, in this. Our economic system, our, our politics, our social system, the way, um, the way uh, we uh, we run our societies, essentially, all feeds into that. And we've seen that in so many different ways from... From the way this kind of coronavirus pandemic starts with the fact that that humans have a value system which is which is different from other animals. So most animals um, biologically value things that feed them or help them reproduce or help them survive in their environment. We value things just because we think they're beautiful, you know, or they're worth something for a complete arbitrary reason. And then we all collectively agree on that value. And so say it's pangolin scales and pangolin scales are just made of keratin. You know, it's the same stuff that we have on our fingernails. And yet... We're not um, we're not harvesting fingernails. We're harvesting pangolins because that's the valuable one. And so, you know, then we're going into ecosystems, intact ecosystems, to get the pangolins out to bring them to another artificial environment, a city where people live in huge concentrations. And you know, then the um, then the uh, the virus that um, moves from its its uh, the host it's evolved to. Uh, Um, rely on in its uh, previous ecosystem to a human ecosystem and so on and then because we work as a system a global system now that network takes it across the world and people die the economy crashes and you know um, yeah it's it's this amazing thing that we've created and chimpanzees haven't did so that an answer you, your question? I don't think it did. Sorry.
0: Um, it doesn't matter. You answered a lot of other questions. Um, so that was a good thing. The, um, but I'm, I'm interested in the, the things that changed for you in this book. Like you, you mentioned art there. And I presume now when you look at uh, a, a certain some pieces of art, what you see is not what you saw before this study began what you see the the artist trying to express what you see it attaching to culturally biologically etc has has that changed for you
3: um i think in terms of individual pieces of art probably not but i think i have now more of an appreciation of where that that need to create comes from and um how that fits into the um the social landscape that um created it and how we copy ideas and um and and use them from from this this multitude of um of background that we have now and and it's it's much greater than it's ever been because we're all so interconnected now um you know there was a time when we lived in when we had to rely basically on on um, what we would encounter in our lifetimes and the the visitors that we would see, and so on, and our own imaginations. Now we have access to through the internet to the imaginations of people from all over the world. So these these cultural creations that don't come from nowhere. They they you know they have they are they come from an evolutionary process as well. And so um, you know and 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 the. The collaborations, the maternal collaborations that are formed during pregnancy and childbirth, really underpin the networking that that our species, that societies, rely on. And I think that they might have been, I really think they might have been the, um, you know, the the earliest sort of. Um, even before hunting, I think they these were the earliest collaborations that really guided our species trajectory in that in that way towards um, collaboration, and um, yeah. So 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 as a species, what we do as individuals is we rely not on our own brains. We rely on that a bit. You know, we are we have we are slightly smarter than the other animals, but it's not that that's important. We rely on the collective brain. So we rely on the knowledge held by our society you know i don't need to know personally how to do pretty much anything because i can learn from my society and i can rely on them for everything from all the all the energy that i need for my food you know if i need to feed myself i just open a can of beans and put it on the hob and there you are there's my dinner i didn't have to um grow or um, hunt down an animal or do any of that because i'm relying now on this you know this um this evolutionary process that has created now a society that is so networked globally that you know the the, the aluminium can is coming from um a mountain in wherever a, a different continent and you know there are thousands and thousands of people that have gone into creating that but even if you break it down really early on we were still reliant on each other and on the networks that we have these social networks for everything um, and the wider the networks the broader the more the, the greater the population that we had the more people there are in our so- in our society and the better networked we are the more our culture can evolve because there are more ideas and knowledge held by different people within that so when you need to know about something you need to know how to um, nap an axe or make an arrowhead or dig for potatoes or whatever there is somebody in your society that will have learned it from you know the next door society because they're networked um, who can trade with someone else so we, we are reliant on each other and that's what I mean by we kind of we make ourselves but we make ourselves through each other not as individuals.
4: Why do you think as a society now we are like so profoundly sort of anti-intellectual and also why do you think we are now in a place where there's so much waste like when I think about the way our society's structured it seems so structured to hold most people back and to hold people back, particularly along racial lines, uh, in terms of sexism as well. And like, it seems like it is structured to only allow a few sort of children of the wealthy access to it. And at the same time, like all of the press seems so rabidly anti-intellectual as well. Like those, both of those things seem so wrong from an evolutionary point of view, or and from the way that you've just described what society is and what it should be and what we are. And like I'm just like, how has it come to be such a mess and so counterproductive?
3: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So, so basically, if we look at if we look at what governs life and what governs evolution, the limitation is really energy. How much energy can you harness? And every species is limited to that. So, how much can it eat? Um, if it if it can't have enough to eat, then it goes extinct. Or the, you know that community locally goes extinct and what humans managed to do was harness external amounts of energy more energy than any other species and that was enough as um that, that drove our evolution so so if you think of the collective if you think of the community um we we are offloading our cognitive energy load as well as our physical energy load. So we can rely on a group of people to hunt while someone else is making tools. So we, we don't have to do everything ourselves because we said we wouldn't have time to produce that amount, that amount of calories ourselves. We're relying on the collective. And so as hunter-gatherers, um, which is what we evolved as, that's what chimps are, um, we honed this more and more, until we became much more and more successful and our populations grew. And I think we were, you know, we were in the millions, um, perhaps as much as 5 million before the Holocene. And then what happened during the Holocene is uh, we, our culture evolved to um, uh, through the technological evolution, basically of agriculture, which meant um, more calories um, in a settled space and so so the limitation the bio the um biological limitation for um our societies which was um which we I'm not really explaining this very well but what i'm saying is when, when that that our um our social societies we were very very egalitarian um um, and hunter-gatherer societies now are still egalitarian in terms of that, you know, men and women might have separate roles, but one is not um, considered uh, more important than the other. They both have equal say on where they live and um, the children and so on. Um, but when we became settled, what happened is uh, we started storing things and then um, the the larger our populations could expand greater. And so specializations evolved even more and we started getting these social hierarchies which started controlling us because once you have land that needs that could be you know things could be stolen um livestock or um um crops um things things that were valuable we needed to defend them so we needed to put walls around so then we needed people who would do do the defending, and then pe- other people could store some of these. And once we had storage, we had a difference in um, in uh, wealth. And um, we start looking, we start seeing from um, about eight thousand years ago uh, settlements with inequality for the first time, um, and that's health inequality and wealth inequality. So. Um, It seems to arrive with with settlement and with being able to, with ownership, once you start owning stuff. And we start to value people according to the stuff they have. Um, Because, yeah, so that's another thing that humans do, which other animals don't do, which is this this idea of um, valuing things. Um, what we decide collectively as important and so once we start valuing wealth whether that's how many shells you own or how much wheat you own or oil you own or whatever doesn't matter um then we all collectively collude to make that um valuable and our behavior changes so we because we're so social that guides um the evolution of our behavior completely so um because, because we're not all related to each other in our society, the only way we can show that we are kind of socially related, we're culturally related, is to is through our behaviour. So we have to show that we are the same. And the only way we can show that we're the same as each other is by othering people who are not like us. So, so you know, social norms develop and it becomes... Um, you know, t- taboo not to shake hands because if you don't shake hands, you're not polite, you're not one of us, you're not show- you're not copying in the same way because our entire evolution is based on copying. just as genetic evolution is based on copying genes. Um, so our our cultural evolution is also based on copying. it's copying behaviors or copying techniques with tools or copying what we eat. Um, and and then this gets uh, this gets selected by society over generations and um, among the population. As the copying happens, more successful things carry on. Like TikTok, that's the most basic copying genre in the world. Everyone
4: is literally just, oh, I'll learn that dance from TikTok. That's astonishing.
3: We are. We are the best copy. That's why we are not chimps, because we are the best copiers in the world. We copy all the time and we copy really, really accurately.
0: So is that, I mean, do you see that now as one of you know one of the problems i think with being human is that we have this incredible conflict between the uh, evolved inner life that we have and the projection of who we are on, on, on the outside which as far as we know of course this might be wrong but as far as we know we don't see that in other species we don't see the enormous possible disparity between Who you are inside, your thoughts, what you really feel—you know—so many different things with what you're projecting. So you fit in with the group. That those two things, the the clash between those two things, is very often where the increase in othering, the desperation to belong to the group. I mean, when you talk about art, and I think you know, to an extent, you're right, Josie. Art movements: there are people who are all lauded, and they all do roughly the same thing. And then someone like Van Gogh comes along, who is now considered one of the greatest, but he's doing these incredible illuminated images Mm. and people are going well what is this because it is the other and that seems to me to be the one of our major battles as a species that all of those things that to, to fit in and to suppress who we might be internally
3: yeah i mean it's the it's the constant problem of the immigrant right so um the immigrant comes and if the immigrant um um, is themselves, then they're not the same as everyone else, and so they don't fit in, and they kind of they f- face ostracism or they face problems. Um, but if they try and assimilate, they will never do it as well as somebody who was born there, and so people are very mistrustful of that because you know they're they're trying to fake it. Um, so it's difficult it's really difficult um and some people have a lot more awareness self awareness and some people don't like you know you look at um for example trump, you know he has absolutely no self awareness at all yeah you know, he doesn't you know his <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't know how he appears his his idea of how he appears is is um completely different from how he actually appears, and i think Possibly people who have more self-awareness are less um, that that's less skewed. But this um, this problem of um, um, of of fitting in and not fitting in um, goes through 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 everything. From um, because when we innovate, we are of course doing something different, and um, we're not very good innovators, actually a lot of a lot of animals that's what they do they innovate if anything new happens they they innovate they have to invent everything for themselves they don't learn from other creatures and so they don't get very far in their cultural inventions we do innovate, but not very often. Almost everything we do is actually just copying, and occasionally accidents will happen, like mutations, where we'll um, copy and something slightly different will happen, which will turn out to be serendipitous. Or we will combine two copying two things together when we copy, and that will produce a new innovation. But almost everything we do is through copying, whether it's you know language or art or. Um, uh, science engineering everything it's it's all copying we we're, we're really um we're brilliant brilliant copiers and not such good um, inventors and that that also that also happens with behavior it takes um there was this really cool study actually which they did um which came out a year or two ago of the kind of the so called hipster effect so you know, copying, copying, copying is what we do. We copy, first of all, we copy our parents and then we copy our peers during um, during adolescence. You know, it's like parents are not cool, but slightly older um, boys and girls are more cool. We're more likely to copy those. And then, um, you know, around uh, 16, 17 or early 20s, you know, we'll have this um, period where, you know, I don't want to be like... Everybody else, I'm going to be different, right? So perhaps you'll come up, you'll spend a long time in your bedroom crafting this perfectly different look, whatever that is, and then you come out and realise that your very, you know, your really different look is actually the same as everybody else's different look. So you know, whether it's being a goth or whether it's being a hipster, um, and and this. <laughs> you know so these are teens or young people who are trying to be different their special beard or the or the wearing a beanie or whatever it is the you know like shoreditch trouser thing whatever it is these are people who want to be different they see themselves as different and they've they've come up with this they're not like intentionally copying someone else. That's what all the ordinary people are doing. That's what they're rebelling against. So they come up with this perfect thing and then realize that actually everybody else has also done this. And so, so and mathematicians have looked into what, you know, how on earth does this happen? And it's um, this this quite cool modeling phenomenon where it's kind of, um, where these, these sort of um, blips arise naturally where people will start being different and then these themselves become copied, not intentionally necessarily, and become more and more popular. And then they become copied by the mass and become completely mainstream. So all these movements that were like Impressionism, for example, or um, Cubism or um, or, uh, Rock and Roll or whatever, whatever the new thing is that's so different, um, if they become mainstream because we're such copiers
0: it's just much faster now than it used to be that's the sad thing where you just go the speed in which something can be uh, a, an act of rebellion and then someone in the advertising industry happens to be at that music festival and they go i believe that's going to sell yogurt And there we are. And that's the end of that. Um, We've run out of time. It's
3: it's intentional. Yeah, sure. Okay. All right. Does it make you feel more thrilled when you see somebody within
4: art that you feel is a genuine innovator? Does it make you feel... How do you feel when you encounter that? Does it feel kind of magic and special and unusual? Or does it feel like, okay, yeah, well, what they're really doing is bringing these things together. Like, do you have any sort of superstitions about creativity or sort of beliefs about creativity that you know are a little bit?
3: I think you know a majority of artists are innovators you know we are all innovators the majority of scientists too are also innovators in that in that we come up with the interpretations of what we are copying but we are nevertheless copying skills that we've learned and influences and so on and we copy without realizing but out of that does come originality and beauty you know we do all think slightly differently and we do all produce things that are slightly differently i didn't mean to be completely reductive oh, uh, no, i do not think but, but, was... but you no know, i mean obviously there are the, the forgers and so on are, are deliberately copying but we are we are copying skills from each other um whether consciously or unconsciously. And from that emerges the great complexity and diversity that we have today, you know, which is why um, a Mexican person looks different from um, um, someone from the Congo, but also wears different clothes, talks a different language and so on. And actually all those things are much greater than the biological differences between those two. And they have arisen just because of this um, great Complexity and diversity that occurs naturally through cultural evolution, and we do all—that's um, what's so exciting, I think. Mm-hmm. That two, you know, two people um, can sit in front of exactly the same scene and paint it and produce pictures that are recognisably of the same thing that objectively exists, but utterly, utterly different,
4: they and have very- such a wealth of perspectives and experiences such a big pool to draw from and, yeah yeah astonishing yeah and yeah and the potential there as well for like all, the, all
3: exactly. of the work. and then the next person that sees any of these pictures that adds mm-hmm. to their it accumulates all the things that we see and all the influences we have it all accumulates and so when we produce whatever we produce through the copying effect, will be, again, something unique to ourselves. Yeah. Um, and it adds to this great wealth of um, culture that we have. I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary. And, and that's one of the, the beauties of the Internet, I guess, that we can see um, creations by humans living across the globe in all these different um, societies but also back in time, all our ancestral stuff as well. And we see it through what we produce right now. And we also see those originally produced things. I mean, I often think some of the, um, you know, you see some of that, uh, those medieval 2D paintings and you see those influences right now in art produced today um, by very different people. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> does, it,
0: does it leave you that? I mean adventure the Anthropocene I think a lot of people finished that and felt they left with a sense of optimism of of the possibilities you know or, or you know of possibilism then whichever do you feel having having written this book that you you've seen a lot of flaws and you've seen a lot of kind of magnificent possibilities as well on the balance of those things do you think we have the tools and is is there enough optimism left for you there
3: yeah, so so what I was saying before about how cultural evolution um, grows and accelerates, so there's this idea that we all sort of, um, we, you know, we use the same sort of stone axes and so on, the same stone tools for um, thousands of years with hardly any change, and then suddenly we had this great um, revolution. And I, I argue that actually it's not to do with um, a genetic change in our brains or a cognitive change. It's just because our populations grew bigger and the networks between them grew greater. And so we were swapping ideas. We we had so many more people to swap ideas from. If you look in cities, they're really vibrant places where um, people learn and universities, same thing, where people swapping ideas all the time. And so you get these cultural explosions. Well, what's happening right now is exactly that we have never been you know we're nearly eight billion people on the planet we are more networked than ever before and we have the technology to to be able to copy each other and, and and hear those ideas and use them and combine them and so on and so i i suggest towards the end of this book that actually we are evolving into this completely different creature we're evolving into a super organism on the planet we act like a super organism we don't act as individuals, it's not your fault or my fault that um, the uh, glaciers are melting in the Arctic, or that the um, the seas are acidifying, or that there's no pangolins left. Um, it's it, but collectively, it's all of our as because of our super organism. That's the effect that we're having. And although you and I individually don't have much agency over this superorganism, organism, it can flip. It can change. So the way that we interact with our planet, because it's systemic, you know, you can feed in one area and completely get a dramatic change to another area. So if you take, for example, this lockdown, people you know there's a there's a pandemic disease people stay in their houses what that's me- meant is that air pollution has massively dropped mm-hmm. what that's meant is um that um because the cars and the um aeroplanes are standing parked um or the oil demand has massively gone down which means it's actually more viable to build more um solar farms which means um so so we're getting these changes through just one thing people staying at home and and these systemic changes can occur in so many so many different ways you know people decide to vote and that's where we do have real agency people decide to vote for example um, instead of having trump they vote for somebody who um, is much more um socially aware and much more environmentally aware and enacts big changes we can we can make a change which actually affects the whole globe in these um in these small ways so we're at this really exciting, interesting time in our species evolution, I think. We've never been so big. We've never been so connected. We've never had more power over the future of this planet. But we're also on a knife edge because we are in danger of destroying the environment that made us, but also capable of doing something about these huge problems of you know, poverty, social inequality, environmental damage. We can do something about that. Yeah. So, um, yeah so I, I I did try and leave it hopeful because I because I am I have to be hopeful you know I've got kids <laughs> Yeah, I think
0: think it's hopeful. I think it's a hopeful book. And I think it's a reminder of some of these rather remarkable and strange things which seem to have uh, become part of our character and part of our possibilities. Um, Is it it just about to be out in paperback, by the way, Transcendence, or is it still?
3: It will come out later this year in paperback, but it's still very much available in hardback um, in here and in the US and in a few other places well thank, uh,
0: you. thank you so much so as we said four transcendence thank is available now and uh josie uh what are you up to uh next i have
4: got to run and pick up my veg bag and then meet meet johnny at home okay well, that
0: day. sounds like <laughs> an adventure i'm going to go and uh, speak to the king of chippenham now will hodgson oh, uh on his oh, podcast lovely. um see you all soon thanks very much everyone for listening thanks very much to all our patreon supporters and everyone else who makes this possible
4: Bye-bye. Bye bye. bye
0: thank you for
1: listening remember you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and subscribe to listen to the full version of both of those conversations transcendence by Gaia and rise of the humans by Dave both available now in fact for a limited time if you go to Dave's website you can download an ebook version of his book for free so make sure you check that out We'll be back next week with a new episode and our guest will be the award-winning author, Sunday Times number one bestseller and too many other accolades to mention, Claire McIntosh. Have a great week. Stay
0: safe. Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs)